You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. Inflation is the enemy, and maybe not the enemy to the stock markets, but the enemy to the consumer, because it means that prices are going up. And despite the fact that Jerome Powell and other central bankers and all their little cohorts say that it's merely transitory, how long is transitory? I mean, transitory now has been six, seven, eight months. With me is Lee Adler from Liquidity Trader to talk about this. He sent me a graph the other day, which was titled The Scariest Chart in the World. And uh, he's here now to explain that and other matters. Lee, I don't think inflation is going anywhere except up or stabilizing. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty wild. It's scary. The chart that I sent you has three lines, different measures of uh Consumer goods inflation, which is just one type of inflation and the one that uh, economists focus on, uh, there's other kinds of inflation which are just as valid, particularly asset price inflation, which we've been suffering from or benefiting from for you know, 12 years now. But uh, there's a fourth line on that chart, and that shows the size of the Federal Reserve balance sheet. And Milton Friedman, the famous monetary economist, famously said that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon in the sense that it is and can be produced only by a more rapid increase in the quantity of money than in output. And of course, today, economists like to conveniently, they have selective memory. They remember the things from their classical economic training that uh, serves them and their current uh, political position, and then they conveniently forget the things that, that don't serve them. And uh, they cl- they have conveniently forgotten uh, this business about inflation being a monetary phenomenon, and if, if the money supply increases faster than output, we're going to get inflation. Well, uh, we are certainly finally seeing that after years of these massive money printing programs by the major central banks around the world, And um, these inflation lines that are on my chart are perfectly following the expansion of the money supply that has taken place since the uh, pandemic panic of March of uh, 2020. And um, you can see that on that chart that there's about an 8 to 12-month lag between the growth of the money supply or prior to that the uh, shrinkage of the money supply and shrinking inflation, then followed by the massive growth of the money supply and sudden massive uh, inflationary uh, increase. Okay, so it's not that simple. In other words, if you're a commodity trader, you say to yourself, okay, they're digging this amount out the ground, or this particular oil well is producing this amount, but on the other hand, there's more demand than we can supply. So the demand-supply equation is part of it, but on the other hand, money supply is more influential. Is that what you're saying? Well, the money is the fuel for demand. Demand, you can't can't have demand without money. And if the Federal Reserve and the ECB and the Bank of Japan and the People's Bank of China are printing money hand over fist, and it's mostly the Fed, uh, you know, if if they're printing money and pumping it into this system hand over fist, and uh, the money supply is going up faster than the output of these commodities, then the demand is driven by the excess money that commodity speculators and users of commodities have in their pockets. And they have a lot more money in their pockets than the amount of the commodities that are being supplied. Therefore, the prices are uh, inflating. And we're seeing it throughout the consumer price spectrum now, whereas we didn't see that for years. We mostly saw it in the asset 
price uh, sphere. And that's because of the way the money, uh, the money supply was, was being inflated and the, the different uh, mechanisms that were being used uh, before versus now. Take your economics and your analytical hat off at the moment and just bear with me while I go through a screen. Uh, it's the CLB index, the Commodity Research Bureau index. I'm looking at crude oil year to date. I mean, OK, it's down today by 1.3%. West Texas crude is $79.74 per barrel, which is about $3 lower than it was at its peak last week. But nonetheless, year to date, 64.2% higher. Brent crude oil at 56.5%. Natural gas, right. which is a big concern for Europeans up where you are at the moment, uh, 92% higher. And so we go down the list. And then we get to the things that people put in their shopping baskets every day. Uh, wheat year to date is up uh, 28%. Cheese is up 6.4%. Uh, okay, that's not particularly dramatic. Uh, but you've got oats up 102.6%. Canola oil up 62%. And so it goes on cotton, for goodness sake. 49.4% higher for the year. So although it might be financial engineering that is contributing to the price rises in a basket of commodities, it's also going to therefore affect people that go down to their Walmart every single day and have to buy this stuff, orange juice, wheat, oats, etc. It's a disturbing situation. Scary. And it's not just financial engineering anymore because the fiscal policies of governments have been, done a 180 since the pandemic, and they have focused more on getting money into the pockets of consumers and, and people who spend uh, for everyday goods and services, whereas for a dozen years before that, the focus was on getting the money into the people at the top, and, you know, they spend it on assets. So we saw massive asset price inflation in real estate, in housing, in, uh, of course, stocks, in bonds, in uh, art. Uh, and all these other uh, esoteric uh, things like um, cryptocurrencies. So all of the things that were driven uh, asset price inflation suddenly changed a year ago or a year and a half ago when fiscal policy began to take aim at consumers and to put money directly into the pockets of people like you and me who are not massively speculating in commodities and, and uh, art and stocks, but in uh, the everyday items that we have to purchase to subsist. So now we're seeing the effects of, of this change in policy in direct consumer price inflation, whereas before they could, they could ignore all the inflation because they felt it was beneficial inflation. It was uh, trickle down. It was stuff that was going to trickle down to the common man. Well, it never trickled down until they actually changed the, the political fiscal policy to make sure that the money got to the, uh, the middle class. I know you like uh, chicken soup with barley. It's one of your favorite things. And uh, poultry prices, by the way, nearly 30% higher uh, this year. PPI in the United States, producer price inflation. In other words, the price of goods as they leave the factory gates, 8.6% right. higher, which is the highest right. since records began. I mean, current records began. A CPI inflation, that's consumer price inflation. A basket of goods at your local Walmart or whatever store it is, 6.2% up. And yeah, that's vastly understated too because housing is so underweighted and they manipulate the the housing input numbers so badly but that's beginning to catch up now you know the, there's a lag in these housing numbers uh the way the uh cpi index is is constructed 
And the massive, massive housing inflation that we've had for years now is finally beginning to creep into the, the CPI, which is uh, it really, if, if they counted housing accurately, we would be closer to uh, uh, six or seven or eight or nine percent. CPI than the current, uh, I think it's what, 4.6? No, 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 you're, no, you're wrong. It's 6.2% was the October. You're right. Okay, October I'm, talking, print. I'm talking about the core. The headline oh, okay. is 6 point something. Yeah. And the core, if you, if you eliminate food and energy, is about 4.6. But if, you, if they counted housing inflation accurately, then it would be double that. It would be closer to 10%. So what does this mean? I mean, you've been in the United States of America, interest rates are practically zero. Uh, so if yep. you put your money in the bank, uh, I don't know, if you go to a, a clever bank, you maybe get half a percent or 1% interest on your on your savings. But on the other hand, you go down to the shops and your basket of goods has gone up 6%. I can't understand how this can happen. Surely there's something wrong here. And historically, I don't think there's been this gap, a gap this wide in history. Please tell me more because you're an historian. Yeah, you know, the, the, the central banks are still suppressing interest rates and they're still robbing savers. And for those of us that own real estate, you know, we're fortunate because we have a hedge against this. You know, we our house, my house in Florida is inflating in value by about 18 percent a year. So I have some protection still. But I want to sell that house. I want to buy property here in Europe. But there's going to be a gap between the time I sell and the time I buy here. Who knows how much money I'm going to lose in in that process? Maybe I should hold on to my house in in, uh, in Florida and just uh, take out a mortgage here to buy property here in, in Europe. But I'm, I'm, I'm almost afraid to be out of the real estate market now. I'm terrified not to have that hedge against this massive inflation that the central banks have engineered. And, um, you know, if you don't own real estate, if you're on the outside looking in and you have your money sitting in the bank in a savings account, you're getting raped. Okay, so can't can't you do both? Can't you keep your lovely place in Florida and at the same time take advantage of record low interest rates worldwide and get a a mortgage, a bond on a beautiful apartment in Nice or in Krakow or somewhere like that? Yeah, I mean, I could do that. I, I don't like debt. And even even though it's very cheap at my age, at, at my ripe old age, I, I prefer not to carry debt. I'd rather have to I'd rather own these things free and clear. And uh, if I go away for the summer, I can put them on Airbnb and generate a really nice cash flow and arbitrage that against uh, some of the other places that I like to travel to. So, I, I you know, I like I like cash investments. I'm not into leverage. And uh, I know the big time. Big money speculators love the leverage, and especially now, it's common sense to continue to take that free money that the central banks are handing out and, and do that. Uh, my personal preference is is not to do that because at some point, this hyperinflation—well, it's not quite hyper yet, but we're we're approaching that double-digit area yeah. where we could call it hyperinflation. Um, but at some point, that this will reverse. Now, whether it happens in six months, six years, or you know, after I'm long gone, I don't know. Um, but I, my preference is not to not to leverage and not to use debt. But I'm not—I uh, can't advise other people what to do. It seems like a, a common sense thing to to borrow money if the central banks are paying you to do that, which is what they're doing right now. I don't want to say anything uh, with a personal finance angle. I don't want to inject that angle into this conversation. But I would think yep. at your age—I mean, you you say you're old, but you know you're a very old. I won't say how old you are, because but I do know how old you are. But you're very yep. young, whatever age you are. I 
I would say that but, at this stage of your life is exactly when you should take on debt because heaven forbid that you die quite soon and it's someone else's problem, well, not yours. Well, that's you know, I am going to die and, you know, maybe the, uh, the fact that I don't have any heirs that uh, will uh, have to incur this debt, uh, maybe I should just stick it to the banks, right? I guess that's, uh, that's what you're telling them. me to do. Well, I'm not telling you. I'm just saying that that is one, that is one scenario that well, I would yeah, say. That's one point of view, no question about it. Okay. Well, the, and what... it's, it's common sense. I mean, this is what the central bank policies have been. They, they've been trying to force people who are like me, who don't like to take on debt, who like to uh, be conservative. They're trying to pour, force people like that who are natural savers and risk averse mm. to, to, to take risk. And this is what they've done all along. And now we're paying a terrible price for it, all of us. What's the Fed, what's the Fed going to do? Firstly, they won't do anything before Jerome Powell uh, loses his job uh, in February. And I think there's another person from the Fed that's going to take his place. What will the new person do? Will they say, we've got to normalize the situation? On the one hand, we hope that inflation comes down so the gap narrows. On the other hand, we should narrow the gap as well by raising interest rates. When is the Fed going to raise rates like certain emerging market economies and certain emerging market central bankers are doing? Well, if the Fed reduces uh, QE, which you know they've announced that they're going to do, they're going to cut their purchases by 15 billion per month uh, for the next six to eight months. So they say, but they say they'll also be flexible. So, in other words, if the markets become unstable as a result of them uh, pulling the plug a little bit, they're going to come back in and, and start pumping money again. I have no doubt about that. It doesn't matter. So before who, you go on, what you're saying is that if things get bad, then they'll revert to their current policy, it, the, the, the yeah, one that I'm they're sure, potentially you know, reversing. You know, I don't know what their uh, threshold is. Is it a 20% decline where uh, your old network CNBC declares a bear market? I, I don't know what the Fed's threshold of pain is. But there's no question that they'll reverse course if these markets become unstable. Now, they have a slush fund to to kind of uh, cushion whatever is going to happen uh, and push it out in time by three or four or five or six months. They have this reverse repo fund, and there's uh, $1.4 trillion sitting in that that can act as, a, as an absorb, a shock absorber. But at some point, that money is going to run out, too. So we are, you know, we're going to face... A come to Jesus moment down the road here. Uh, yeah, I've made a forecast in some of my liquidity trader reports as far as you know where and when that should be. But you know it's out there and, and it's coming, but it's not immediate. It's not going to happen tomorrow. Okay, let's have a look at other things now. And obviously, uh, other things are linked to the price of money and inflation and growth and everything else. Uh, SP 500. I'm looking at my screen now, Lee, and it's um, close to 4,700. I mean, it's been above yeah. there and it pulled back a little bit at the end of last right. week. This is an extraordinary move. I mean, when we started talking, I think the S&P was, uh, I don't know, maybe when we started talking, it was it was below 1,000 at 666. It was around 1,300. Mm. And, uh, right, you were bearish at that time and um, <laughs> you've always been bearish. It gives me a reason to get up in the morning to get some action so I can I can get a good podcast going here and there. I told you I went to 1700 and I think this was in uh, June of 2013 and uh, we were we were talking about 1700 then and here we are at 4700. Isn't it extraordinary? Uh, And you called it all the way. 
There's a couple of times when you wavered and you said, no, I think there we were getting to the point where it could break down. It could break down. Yeah. You didn't say it would. You said it could break down. And then you qualified it and said, no, it's keep, keeping on going. What do you see now? Well, you know, it's the, the rule number one, don't fight the Fed. And the Fed uh, had been supporting the market for all these years, with the exception of Janet Yellen, who tried to, nor quote, normalize the balance sheet. I call it bloodletting. And she actually shrank the balance sheet for a while. And we had chaos in the market. The 10-year yield went from one and a half to three percent. And then uh, uh, Trump fired her and hired Jerome Powell. And Powell panicked and stopped the, the balance sheet normalization. And then he started... And then when the money markets froze up because the uh, Treasury was dumping so much paper into the market and the Fed wasn't buying enough of it, Powell panicked and, and he started to step on the accelerator. And, and the Fed was very supportive of the markets. And then, of course, we had the pandemic and the Fed pumped even more money into the market. But now they're saying, OK, we're going to start uh, pumping less money into the market. And that is a change. That is a sea change in policy. So the you know the idea of don't fight the Fed now is the idea that well the Fed is no longer so supportive of the market. The Fed is pulling the punch bowl, and we need to pay attention to that. Now the markets may not turn on a dime, but with the Fed being unfriendly now, I think we have to start to think in terms of you know we are getting into the window where this market will top out. And we will have some kind of a bearish trend unless and until the Fed reverses course again. So for now, I think the, the momentum, the other the other rule, rule number two is the trend is your friend and don't fight the tape. So mm. the, the 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 previous momentum that we had that was driving this thing is still there and it, it could go a little higher. But I think we start to look for opportunities to lighten up, get out of stocks if you're long and um you know, look look at the charts for things that are rolling over for potential short sales now that we haven't had for a long, long time. So I'm on, you know, my, my my antenna are up. I'm looking for opportunities on the short side. I haven't seen many yet, but um, I'm beginning to think of this in different terms. I'm watching the the uptrend very carefully for signs that it's uh, the momentum is is waning. Let me give you two scenarios as we close this fascinating conversation. Scenario number one: the Fed says. Well, the new Fed governor says, OK, we need to normalize and we need to raise rates, but on a steady basis and when economic data demands it. So they flag that interest rates are going to rise. The market says, oh, wait a second, for a few hours, uh, we're going to sell it off. But then again, they just keep on buying. If the Fed suddenly came out with an emergency meeting saying we have to raise rates now by 25 or 50 basis points, the market would fall in a massive heap, would it not? Yeah, I, I, it's, yeah it's hard to say, you know, what the Fed says. It, it, I, look, if the Fed reduces its purchases while the U.S. Treasury continues to flood the market with paper, longer term yields are going to rise. OK, there's going to be the Fed will be absorbing less of the supply. So therefore, yields will rise. Now, what happens at the short end? They have a little more control over. They could hold short rates close to zero for a while. Again, they have this this uh, this reverse repo slush fund that will enable them to do that. But long rates are long term interest rates are going to be less cooperative as the Fed cuts back on its purchases and absorbs less and less of the treasury supply, but the 10-year benchmark treasury yield will rise. And and other yields will rise across the curve, too. So the, you know, the, the idea that they're, oh, the Fed's just going to raise rates, 
if you reduce the supply of money and you continue the supply of paper that's absorbing that money at the same level, then prices of that paper will fall and the yields will rise. And we're going to have higher yields, higher mortgage rates, and, and things are going to slow down. Um, you know, as far as when they're going to actively try to push short-term rates higher, honestly, I, I don't know. And, and I don't really care to speculate about that because the market responds to changes in the level of money. The, the talk is meaningless. The market actually responds to the level of the amount of money in the system. So whatever the Fed says, irrelevant. It's what they do and how, how fast the money comes out of the market that matters. How do we follow your work, both liquidity trader and also at Wall Street Examiner? Please tell us. Okay, well, you can find my proprietary research, uh, both on the uh, monetary matters and the technical market matters at liquiditytrader.com. And um, your listeners can uh, try that service for 90 days risk-free. And I also write uh, free uh, articles occasionally or daily at the uh, Wall Street Examiner, wallstreetexaminer.com, where you can get some of my thinking on the intraday day trading stuff on the U.S. stock market. Brilliant stuff. Thanks, Lee. Lee Adler is from Liquidity Trader and the Wall Street Examiner. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.